We discuss endlessly the different mechanisms of actions of psychotropic medications. But what does psychotherapy do in the brain? Welcome to our special series on psychiatry. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, author of You Can Think Like a Psychiatrist, your host. And with me today is Dr. Bodhi Dunlop. Dr. Dunlop is the director of the Mood and Anxiety Disorders Program at the Emory University School of Medicine in Atlanta, Georgia. Dr. Dunlop's primary research interests are in the neurobiology and treatment response of major depression and anxiety disorders. Welcome to ReachMD. Thank you. Now, Dr. Dunlop, does psychotherapy, in fact, change our brain? Yes, it does. <laughs> well, that <laughs> I would was easy. Say our brains change every day with really? everything we do. Everything we learn is new synaptic connections being formed, new memories being formed. So, yeah, psychotherapy changes the brain just like our brain is changing every day. Now, does it matter what kind of psychotherapy? Well, yeah, I think that's where it gets interesting. There are different forms of performing psychotherapy, and they may specifically act on the brain in each having a unique way. We can break these types of therapy down perhaps into exposure therapies where people overcome learned fears into dynamic therapies like the Freudian-based psychotherapy where people are focusing on unconscious associations with things, and then on cognitive therapies where habits of thinking are replaced with new habits of thinking. Then I could talk a little bit about each of those types of therapy and how we think they change. Yeah, so let's do that. How about start with exposure therapy? Okay, so this is really perhaps where the most exciting breakthroughs have occurred. Fear learning, we pretty much can be certain, is occurring in the amygdala. Part of the amygdala is making the association between a certain stimulus or a thing in the environment and its potential danger or threat. And this association is made through the amygdala. And that initial learning is very powerful and generalized. So if you initially learn to fear heights, it's all heights everywhere. The overcoming of that is achieved through exposure or meaning putting yourself in situations where you are confronting that which you fear, confronting the heights, and staying in that situation until you no longer experience the fear anymore. And what we know is that there are competing memories that seem to be laid down, perhaps partly through the amygdala's involvement with the hippocampus, that say in this situation, in this context, this height is not dangerous. And so you learn to extinguish fear through exposure, but that extinction learning is specific to the situation in which it is learned to be safe. So, for example, if you learned to not fear elevators, if you were exposed to going up elevators and that's how you overcame your fear of heights in elevators, that wouldn't necessarily carry over all that well to fear of heights in skyscrapers Mm -hmm. at the top of the building or something like that. Because that initial fear that you learned is very broad-based and it applies across multiple scenarios and you, you learn individually the specific context in which it's safe. And that seems to involve hippocampal and amygdala interactions through the exposure. Now, what about psychodynamic therapy? Well, I think this is what's the trickiest one because <laughs> everyone does this a little bit differently. But I think about this in terms of that there are latent associations in the brain, that each memory has synaptic connections to other synapses. So neurons are talking to each other, and those that we can access frequently and consciously become quite strong But the old memories, as I say, are not forgotten, and they may connect up. So an example of this might be a situation I once had in therapy. A woman came to the appointment and said, you know, I got a ticket on the way here from a policeman. I'm really mad about it. She went on a long time about how mad she was with the policeman. Shouldn't they be protecting her? And I said, well, tell me more about this idea of protecting. And she went on from there to talk. It just kind of associated gradually over time to her father and how he had not protected her when she was an adolescent and she needed help. And through that, we came to 
make a connection between the rage at the policeman, which seemed out of proportion because she actually had been speeding, was actually a redirection of the anger she had had against her father she had not previously expressed. So we, I believe that these are connections that are weak, but they're in the brain. And by doing psychotherapy, these connections between different areas of the prefrontal cortex or wherever these memories are distributed in the cortex can be re-strengthened and brought into conscious awareness through ultimately through uh, connections with the hippocampus. So that's how we think dynamic therapy is working. It's strengthening connections but that are relatively quiescent or latent. Now, could you actually see this in a brain scan? Well, no, not really that per se, but you can study priming where you give people a suggestion of a memory or of a knowledge, a piece of knowledge, and see how their brain activates as it puts it together. You prime them for a certain word that you think they will associate to by giving them perhaps the first three letters, and then you can see how partial connections are formed. But no, specifically seeing the brain change in the course of dynamic therapy is not visible. As an aside, do you think Freud would be surprised by what we've learned? (laughs) Oh, not at all. I think he would be very excited. You know, he started his life as a neuroscientist, and he actually gave up neuroscience neurology because there were no tools available to study the brain. Mm. And that's how he got into this indirect route of studying the unconscious. But I think he would be very excited to see our ability to see mental processes as actual biological phenomena occurring in the brain. Okay, so we've talked about exposure therapy, psychodynamic therapy. What about cognitive behavioral therapy? Yeah, so cognitive behavioral therapy is about developing new habits of mind, learning to reappraise one's emotional reactions to situations through logic and and assessing things rationally. And we believe that there's connections between the prefrontal cortex and the basal ganglia then project onto the globus pallidus and the thalamus and back to the cortex. And we call these, for a shorthand, cortical striatal loops. And that seems to be how information is often processed in the brain as information is added and subtracted along those loops. They essentially become habitual ways of thinking and of behaving. And we believe that in doing CBT, we are replacing how some of those loops fire with a new way of processing that information through there. So we believe that it's actually through the basal ganglia and perhaps thalamus and cortex that we're changing the brain network connectivity through doing cognitive behavioral therapy. You know, one thing I didn't mention in all this is the shared aspect of the therapies, which is empathy. You know, all of these psychotherapies involve empathic listening or concerned listening of the patient. And perhaps one of our most interesting studies that's been done in the last couple of years, not at Emory here, but that has been published, was a study of pain and the empathic experience of pain. This was a study in which um, women watched their male partner have their hand be exposed to a heat after they've already had their hand exposed to a heat. So the women would go through and have their hand exposed to heat, and they would look at how that brain responded to that painful level of heat. And then they looked at the women's brains as they watched their husband's hand get exposed to that level of heat. And what was remarkable is that the activation in the brain was identical with the exception of the somatosensory cortex. The actual part of the brain that would be feeling that, that maps to the hand, did not activate. But the rest of the pain network, the anterior cingulate, the insula, the thalamus, the cerebellum, was all activating in a similar way. So in empathy, when we empathize with us, we are recreating in ourselves their own emotional experience. And this is likely happening in all psychotherapies. For those of us who may not be up to date on our neuroanatomy, just real quick, Bodhi, tell us the basics here. What role does the amygdala play? You've mentioned that a couple different times. Well, we believe the amygdala is the site of where fear associations are most frequently made. And this is where, you know, perhaps in anxiety disorders or fear disorders, we have the best ability to leap from animal models to humans because the evolutionary anatomy is so well preserved. When you have an exposure to a situation, if it's associated with a negative outcome, that association is learned through synaptic connections formed in the amygdala. 
So you learn fear in the amygdala, and the amygdala also is the effector action of the fear. So part of the amygdala learns the fear, and the other part kicks out the signal to the rest of the brain to have a fear response, including projections to the brain stem to induce tachypnea, freezing responses, projections to the hypothalamus to induce HPA axis activation, projections to increase norepinephrine release and, and uh, for arousal and attention. So it learns and also initiates the fear response that is carried out by various other aspects of the brain. How about the hippocampus? What role does that play? Well, the hippocampus plays multiple roles. Perhaps most importantly, it provides a context for the situations in which things occur. It lets us know in this environment, at this time, this is when these things happen. And so the hippocampus seems to be able to play a role to accentuate or inhibit the amygdala response based on the context in which fear is occurring. Hippocampus plays a lot of other roles as well. It's important for us being able to make declarative memories or to say what we know about our lives and our world around us. That's what we call explicit memory. It seems to be relayed through. And it's also important as a negative feedback organ for the HPA axis. It has glucocorticoid receptors which signal the shutdown of the stress response after a stressor. So hippocampus plays many roles. Now, interesting that psychotherapy can do all of this. Do the antidepressants do similar things? I think they sort of do. If we think of these illnesses as disrupted neuronal signaling or circuitry that's firing abnormally, in that gross sense then, they are doing the same thing. They are interrupting this abnormal circuitry. But it's how they do it that is perhaps different from the psychotherapy. They're acting primarily at limbic systems to reduce amygdala activity. The SSRIs increase serotonergic signaling. That's widely accepted. But what's not known is that these serotonergic projections from the brainstem actually project to GABAergic interneurons or inhibitory cells of short projections in different parts of the brain. And it's actually that increased GABA activity that's causing the reduced amygdala activation. So the antidepressants are primarily acting to suppress this bottom-up drive for anxiety, this anxiety that arises in the limbic centers and then pushes forward into the cortex. They do have some effects in the frontal cortex as well. They do seem to improve frontal cortical functioning. But it really seems to be that limbic inhibition that antidepressants do directly, which is only achieved indirectly through the psychotherapy Mm. techniques. Well, thank you so much for being on our show today. Oh, you're very welcome. We've been discussing the mechanism of action of psychotherapy with our guest today, Dr. Bodhi Dunlop from Emory University School of Medicine. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the special series on psychiatry on ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your questions and comments, so please visit us at ReachMD.com. Our new on-demand and podcast features will allow you to access our entire program library. Thank you for listening.